and welcome to the latest podcast from the Susie Lamplew Trust. I'm Suki Barker, Chief Executive of the Trust. Our discussion today is on the victim's experience of the criminal justice system, from reporting to conviction, how the pandemic has affected these systems and in what ways this impacts victims. I'm joined by two fantastic guests today. Firstly, we're joined by Tracy Morgan, stalking survivor and pioneer. Tracy's stalking case started back in 1992 and is ongoing to this day. She has been at the forefront of campaigning towards change in stalking law and policy ever since. In particular, the push for making stalking a crime in 1997 and 2012 under the Protection from Harassment Act. Thank you, Tracy, for joining us. Thank you very much. And in the second part of today's discussion, we are also joined by Dame Vera Bird, Victims Commissioner for England and Wales. Vera previously served as Labour MP, the Solicitor General for England and Wales and Police and Crime Commissioner. This was after practising as a criminal barrister for many years. We know that the pandemic has not deterred stalkers. In fact, our report, Unmasking Stalking, published this week, highlights the rise in cyber behaviours, such as social media communication and hacking, as well as offline behaviours. Stalking has been described as a crime of psychological terror, with a deep and significant impact on victims' well-being, both emotionally and physically. The impact of stalking is devastating and can infiltrate every aspect of a victim's life, with many victims reporting symptoms that are consistent with PTSD. Tracy, could you start by telling us a little bit about your experience of stalking? And can you explain why it's vital that victims are heard and believed by police and other authorities? Yes, basically, um, my case started in 1992 um, when the term stalking just related to um, wildlife, frankly. Um, and mine, mine started in the workplace, a colleague um, who was very much a loner, depressive. I felt sorry for him and thought I was doing him a favour by inviting him for coffee at lunch times or you know, just you know, taking an interest in him. Unfortunately, um, I started seeing him in places where I was going of an evening, um, aerobics or college, um, and it just seemed to be behind me in the car all the time. Um, and I basically became his hobby. Um, at that point, I started to question my sanity. Um, and this started um, at sort of the beginning of November. And by the end of the month, I was on sleeping pills thinking I was going mad. It was about terrorising me. It was about frightening me to the point where I didn't know if I was going to die today. <laughs> um, at the time, um, my husband, he um, also um, became a target of my stalker. And daily, we had daily incidents of being watched followed um i had oil poured over my car um just unsigned cards coming through the post silent phone calls this was pre mobile phones um so it, this at this point a stalker would have to make a lot of effort to go somewhere to do something um obviously pre um any cyber stalking um but he, that he did um and it basically took over my life. Um, the fact, the matter was that I wasn't being attacked. I wasn't being physically attacked. However, every element of my life had been invaded to the point where I'd keep all the curtains shut, was frightened to go outside the door. 
Um, and I was just feeling paranoid and feeling that I was going mad. And I would scream at the walls, telling him to go away. And how was he finding out where I was going? Um, and this happened on a daily basis. Um, we later learned he'd researched my family tree and was also pestering my family and my husband's family at the time. So this went on and on. And um, my employers at the time said they were dealing with it. Um, unfortunately, um, I, I was called uh, an emotional paranoid female. Um, so it wasn't taken as seriously as it should have been. Um, but three months into it, um, the police were called in. And I was very lucky in that my two case officers um, took me seriously. Um, that made a huge difference. That, that had a huge impact on the fact that I was felt I was losing my sanity and not being believed, uh, being laughed at, frankly, um, because I was going in to telling my, my bosses. Um, at one point I said, could he have bugged my house? Um, and I was virtually laughed at the office. Um, so this was really affecting me. Um, we later learned that he had actually bugged my office and had also got into my home and bugged the bed and the sofa. So that's how he was finding out everything. Um, and to cut a very, very long story short, um, it was it took almost 10 years of um, constant fighting with the justice system as well as the stalker. Um, the police fought. They realised they couldn't help me. They had to let him get on with it and basically they, they could have said wait until he comes and attacks you but they didn't um, they asked me to go public with my case in 1995 um, and that's when we highlighted the loophole that was in the law because there was nothing in the law to stop what he was doing this this emotional terrorism this mental rape on a daily basis many convictions later um, and um, my marriage broke up as a result um, I had to go back to live with my parents and start life again, basically. And the stalking continued um, that some 60 miles away from where it started, um, almost on a daily basis. Um, court case after court case. Um, and as we know, by the time it gets to trial, there have been a number of court cases. Um, all along, the system was played um, by him. Um, so every court case was traumatic um, and at times I felt um, I was ready to take the criminal justice system to court because <laughs> um, it felt like it had almost done as much damage. Um, in March 96 we were successful in our um, test case of um, grievous bodily harm psychiatric injury which was the first of its kind in the UK that acknowledged what he was doing was causing an effect. We tried a year before um, it wasn't successful and it was blamed on my emotional makeup. Um, however, 12 months later, it, it had continued. Um, he'd been in and out of prison even at this point uh, for minor crimes, criminal damage, burglary. Um, it just carried on. So not March 96 was the test case. Um, and then two weeks later, um, we launched a campaign for specific stalking law with the Susie Lamptey Trust uh, and my two case officers and the Association of Chief Police Officers. Um, in July 97, um, we were successful in that the Protection from Harassment Act 
was implemented and that was 10 days before his release from prison. Um, so um, I was back at square one <laughs> uh, because every time he came out of prison, um, he would start again. And in fact, most prison sentences, he didn't stop. It, it carried on um, until um, November 2001. I was in Cardiff um, telling my story and my mum had a, a phone call um, saying that he'd been arrested for attempted murder. Um, and what I predicted has come true, um, but I was lucky that it wasn't me. He was jailed for life in 2001 um, for attempted murder, um, having to serve a minimum of seven years. Um, however, that has now clearly gone past and it's almost every year now we have to go through a parole process. Um, so I have to relive it. Um, and it just goes on. So we have to be contacted by the probation service who are brilliant um, to check locations, areas, exactly the movements of my, my family. Um, so basically, I'm, I'm still living it even now. Tracy, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story with us today and the terrifying ordeal that you've had to be through going through all these years. Um, I think just, just before we go on, I think it's absolutely remarkable the work through all of this that you've been able to do alongside the trust, campaigning um, and supporting other victims. Um, obviously in 2010, we set up the National Stalking Helpline um, and we've had the legislation, the 97 legislation, the 2012 legislation put in place. And to date that service has supported over 36,000 victims um, and although this has continued and you continue to fight that every day, it's the lessons that we have been able to learn from what you've been able to share with us um, that we've been able to translate into training and, and, and other campaigning um, that has meant that we've been able to um, have, have, a, have an impact um, on those individuals as well. So thank you for sharing that, but also thank you for all of your um I guess amazing work in, in, in campaigning in this uh, in this in this area. Um, I mean, it's just nothing shy of remarkable, really. Well, I think I mean, it was my dream to have a helpline and lots of other things as well. And the Susie Lampley Trust has enabled that and has made that dream come true. <laughs> it feels like there's certainly a, there's been a changing landscape, as you said. We've we've come. Um, sort of a long way over the sort of past couple of decades but the, it still feels like there's a there's a long way to go especially as you sort of describe the recent events in in your case um still and we've been reflecting quite a bit particularly in the report that we've just just launched in terms of the changing landscape just in the past year again in terms of the impact of the of the pandemic and you spoke a little bit Tracy around your experience with the criminal justice system um, what are your thoughts sort of looking back over the past year? Do you, th do you think the victim's experience has changed much just in the, within the criminal justice system? It certainly sounds like you're still fighting, but also particularly in relation to uh, the pandemic. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, society has changed, you know, over the years. You know, my case was there before any cyber stalking, um, which makes it, of course, much easier because people can stalk from the comfort of their own homes. Um, and that's equally as terrifying and I'm, I'm conscious of that you know just because you can't see somebody just 
every time that an email comes in or whatever it it's it's horrendous and terrifying for a victim um with a criminal justice system i feel we have come a long way however there is still a long way to go as far as victims are concerned um victims have had codes promises pledges <laughs> and it's still sort of the, the word rights for a victim is still quite new um, and there's still a long way to go so the way stalking is I feel it almost sometimes colludes with a stalker because all along I felt I was the one on trial I had to justify my movements and the fact that I had carried a video camera around um, you know well why were you carrying a video camera why did you go off your dog walking route well how do you know that <laughs> you know uh, so I feel the the criminal justice system has to to just be a bit more balanced. Even now, you know, so many years after this, um, the pandemic, as far as the pandemic is, concer is concerned, um, it, it it's it's been you know it it's been terrifying because we've been trapped in our homes. Um, you you know that, that the advice given out you know vary your routes to and from work change your, your your you know change things and you know vary um I don't know what else you could say but where you're socializing or yes exactly yeah. yeah so it is you know that's not been possible they know where you are <laughs> um and going out has been um in addition to the normal anxiety that people have had with the pandemic of going out and being with people, they've got masks on. So you don't actually know um, necessarily who that person is that's up the road or or following you. So um, it, it, it adds to it. It's adding to the, the hypervigilance and the terror, really, I think. Uh, also with the pandemic, um, obviously, court cases are taking longer to get to court um, and for me and I know others, the waiting time for a court case is trauma in itself. Every court he hearing leading up to a trial is a test of, of will <laughs> and sanity and that causing untold damage, um, let alone what the stalker is able to continue. Um, and I'm not alone in having the stalker react to court hearings and the involvement of the authorities. Um, so, and this is the most dangerous time for a victim having that lengthy wait you know it's 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 almost like a dripping tap torture <laughs> it's you know when is this going to happen um uh especially if the perpetrator's chances of being in custody are low um you know the tortures just continues and the potential for physical attack is increased what what do you feel are some of the ways that in your opinion the victim's experience can be improved um through the through the criminal justice system yeah i think with the whole thing with with uh, the criminal justice system because immediately it becomes um crown versus the perpetrator's name the victim is like just something that comes along with the case even now i feel you know um they're given you know oh well a victim impact statement or but they they don't have that voice in court they don't have that representative that advocate um and also with the with timings of, of notifications of if a perpetrator might be released or released on bail or the outcome of a court case, it is vital that a victim knows 
the moment or, you know, hours afterwards because it's no good saying, oh, well, I'll contact you tomorrow because that could be too late for a victim. That that victim needs to know immediately that person is on the street. Everyone knows, you know, you've got to risk assess a situation. People can't risk assess if they don't know. <laughs> and it's the worst time is the not knowing. One thing that's passionate because of my case, of course, um, and others I know is for all stalking to be taken seriously, not just ex-partner stalking. And um, I still see it falling through the cracks sometime of, well, because they're not ex-partners, it's not as serious. I, it actually is for the impact on the person, but also the, there is a risk still that, you know, it, it's not, um, it, it is most dangerous, but there is still that risk to a victim if they've not been in a relationship. Um, and I, you know, I see figures promoted that nearly half of all stalking is ex-partner, but that means over half is not. <laughs> um, and just because people like me haven't been a ro in a romantic relationship with our stalkers, it doesn't mean our lives should be valued any less or the risk is any less. So it sounds like Tracy's sort of consistent training in understanding, identifying, stalking, that's a very basic premise. Um, and that's that's one of actually our key recommendations in the, in the report um, today, as well as that, I think what you're saying, that risk identification component seems to be really... Um, lacking yes and i mean we've seen it in the media um recently because i i wrote an article uh, for the metro um on a military um judge he completely minimized it's just um you know um unrequited love and and you know rejected um and he was just trying to win his um love back and you know it this is like it it minimizes it, even words minimize jokes re-traumatize i feel um um so it's it's treating stalking as a bit of a joke um it's it's a level of understanding and i've, I've always said you know changing laws you know with the harassment act and you know i gave evidence to the parliamentary inquiry in 2012 that was far easier than changing attitudes <laughs> so it's it's about people understanding and getting to understand this is about murder prevention <laughs> this is not about a bit of a joke and a bit of a laugh and as as one journalist said to me once well you're you're uh, criminalizing romance <laughs> um it, this is not wow. this is about terror for a victim and their families um because there's not just one victim there are the people the people around that victim um so that's a lot of damage being done um and how about saving lives <laughs> so it's vital that every part of the criminal justice system from police through to judge through to probation have that specialist knowledge and understanding that were it's you know words um letters phone calls are not benign they're terrifying <laughs> and where will they lead and as we know it's, it's this obsessive behavior you know a hundred phone calls this is not normal behavior thank you tracy and just a sort of final question from me just reflecting back on your case and again just staying with the criminal justice system 
Is there, if there was sort of one piece of advice that you could give to sort of a criminal justice profession or just reflecting back on a sort of one piece of best practice that you felt you really experienced, is there, is there something that specifically you could share in terms of either that advice or that one piece of best practice that you've experienced? Key thing for a victim is to be believed and to be taken seriously, for it not to be minimised because... When you're trying to retain your sanity because you don't know what will happen next, you have to be believed. Um, so minimising it, um, saying, oh, well, it's you might be just paranoid or, or you know, come back when they've attacked you or just um, you're overreacting. That victim needs to be believed and taken seriously. This is a serious crime. This isn't a benign nuisance crime. Um, I've always said that control is lost for a victim because they don't know what will happen next, so they lose control. So it's about um, supporting that victim and empowering that victim as well. Thank you so much, Tracy. And thank you for not sharing your story. um, and giving us that really honest account of the impact it's had on you, but also just um, all of your really invaluable thoughts and reflections in terms of where we are still falling short in some of those areas of good practice and advice that we can still be drawing on. Really appreciate your time, Tracy. Thank you. So much more I could say, but yes, um, thank you for giving me that voice, as always. We've just heard Tracy's very emotional story of her experience with stalking, starting back in the early 90s and still ongoing to this day, along with her battle with the criminal justice system in the UK. At this point, I'm really happy that we have Dame Vera Bird joining us for this part of our discussion. Thank you so much for joining us, Vera. Thank you for asking me. Vera, as we just mentioned at the start of today's discussion, we know that the pandemic has not deterred stalkers. The impact of stalking is devastating and can infiltrate every aspect of a victim's life, with many victims reporting symptoms consistent with PTSD. We know that you've worn a number of different hats, from acting as police and crime commissioner to working in courts as barrister and in politics, and now your most recent role as victims commissioner. Your wide-reaching insight into these different worlds is, is quite unique. Could you start by explaining why it's vital that victims are heard and believed by authorities? Yes, I, I, I will. I want to thank Tracy for her account of the harrowing experience of being stalked and the dreadful inadequacy of her experience in the criminal justice mm-hmm. agencies to deal with it. We have to hope that the CJS has got a bit better than it was at the start. But I agree with one really powerful thing she said, which is that the level of understanding of the police and the criminal justice system about stalking is what's absolutely critical. We do know that one in five women and one in 10 men will experience stalking during the course of their lives, which is a shocking statistic. And although, of course, lots of cases don't get to the police and the courts, this is not a strange minority crime, which the police or courts have any excuse for not understanding. And of course, there was new Mm -hmm. legislation introducing protection orders a short time ago, and so everyone should be well-trained. As she described, stalkers terrorise their targets. Victims are living in fear and they can feel like prisoners in their own homes, surrounded by the power of the stalker to create new ways of deliberately intruding Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. on how they live. The CPS show that about 84% of this is domestic abuse. And where there is that connection, then the person stalking knows the person who's the victim intimately and can use tactics that they know will scare them. But of course, stalkers also, even if there's not that relationship, as there wasn't, I think, with Tracy, they make it their business to find out all they can about the victims Mm -hmm. so they can tailor their abuse to be as intrusive as possible. So it's absolutely vital that victims are believed. They have to know that there's somewhere to go and the law's on their side. So they have to, the police have to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. They have to take action. And we also know from experts in trauma that if a person who's traumatized, which being stalked is likely to make you, they'll be made worse if they're not taken seriously mm-hmm. and believed. I mean, not too much pop psychology from me, but if a police officer says, you've got it, I'm onto it, and takes action, there is that, thank goodness, somebody's going to tackle this. A first step toward recovery, some sense of getting power back uh, and some confidence. But if it's reported and no action is really taken, then it is much, much worse because the victim who feels truly powerless has nowhere to go and the stalker becomes all powerful and can just carry on hurting them. So the police believing and taking action is doubly important, but what's happened is often minimized and misunderstood. And I've heard myself of lighthearted comments like, I wish somebody sent me flowers every day. Mm, mm -hmm. This man really admires you, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. And thinking that things that are going on are harmless or at worst a nuisance and victims themselves aren't sure if they're overreacting and they might blame themselves for not managing the individual. The police can tend to think that a criminal has to be threatening in a literal sense, that is their behaviour threatening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're more used to dealing with and is obviously a crime. But really the next reason why police have to believe complainants is because stalking is a pattern of extremely dangerous behavior. It is not only insidious and able to turn a victim's life upside down, but it escalates and it can escalate very, very quickly with tragic results. It's obsessive, it's dangerous, and it needs to be treated in that way. So police have got for all those reasons to take it seriously, but they do need to to refer the victim to expert support. So obviously Susie Lamp, who runs the National Stalking Helpline, a lot of police and crime commissioners have now got stalking specialists in their victims' hubs. And that level of expertise is hugely important to help support. And also such a person will have experience that can help them articulate the dangers and motivate the police. So to anyone suffering from stalking themselves, let me say that the police have recently got more power, mm-hmm. they've got new training, and the charities are working fully despite the pandemic. Thank, thank you, Vera. I mean, something that was quite terrifying for us in the in the report that we're launching this week for National Stalking Awareness Week, is that two thirds of victims reported that they uh, wouldn't in fact or haven't reported to the police because they feared that they they weren't going to to be believed uh, just going back to your point and just how important it is that we do hear what victims are are telling us and victims interactions uh, from what we hear on that on the helpline with the criminal justice system they often describe to us being re-victimized as, as you 
as you highlighted, and not being not being taken seriously. I think one of the key things that that we're seeing is that those those incidents are being seen in isolation rather than that full uh, pattern of behaviour. And you spoke a little bit there already about what we what police need to be doing and the powers that they have. Do you think these have changed? Um, victims' experience has changed since the pandemic and, and the police response needs to change? I think that victims during the pandemic have described themselves as feeling like sitting ducks because they have been, you know, 24-7 in a place where the perpetrator knows that they are going to be and they have no way of escaping. And in addition, quite a lot of uh, stalkers have got more time, they may be furloughed, they may have lost their job, but in any event, there's nowhere to go and mm-hmm. nothing else to do. So they can spend more time tailoring their um, uh, obsession to have the worst impact that it it can. It's very, uh, very much um, worse in the pandemic situation. But, but truly, the understanding that Tracy emphasised hadn't been present with her is very, very important. And it is this repetitive nature of stalking, not the level of violence that points to the obsession. It's the mm-hmm. pattern mm-hmm. which suggests that they're going to be dangerous. And the police need to understand those dynamics and not take you know, what looks like harmless behavior on its own, leaving a message, knocking on a door, whatever mm-hmm. it is. They have to understand that they need to look at everything that's happened together and see, is this unwanted, fixated, obsessive behavior? I, I must say one thing about, about the way the police deal with stalking that is my view uh, uh, only. But it it has been a well-intentioned view that police, when they take a report of stalking, should rely on the victim's assessment of the situation. That's been the golden rule for a long time. And after all, they know the history, they know the stalker better than any outside agency could, and the police want to be victim-focused. And I applaud that and let the person lead. But complainants are not experts in risk assessment. Mm -hmm. And some people are more robust than others and some people are kinder than others and don't want harm to befall the perpetrator they just want the person to go away so it seems to me that the most important thing is for a professional risk assessment not a kind of common sense so this is just you know a a, a suitor you haven't got rid of I will tell him to go Mm -hmm. away they must risk assess. And my view is that if the police assess the stalker to be of lower risk than the complainant believes them to be, then the police must take the complainant's assessment of it. After all, they know the person. But if the complainant thinks the stalker is less harmful or dangerous than the police assess, the police need to use their own assessment and act mm-hmm. accordingly. So it is treated always as the most more dangerous of the two. Mm-hmm. You know, we do want victims to lead. We do want to understand how the behavior is affecting them. But just the fact that you're being stalked doesn't make you an expert in risk assessment. And lots of people are, are just unaware as as many magistrates, I'm afraid, and judges still are mm-hmm. fairly unaware 
how dangerous this can be. So there is a complete need for the police while taking into account what a victim wants to do a proper risk assessment in each and every case and to take the higher of the two assessments if they're going to have a chance of tackling it. And I hope that understanding, which I've been punting for some time, is beginning to take off. We would absolutely agree with you, Vera. I mean, there's been so much work done in, in, in recent years in the sector in terms of robust um, risk assessing. And we've certainly, we've certainly um, come a long way. I don't think we're in a, in a, in a perfect space in terms of that, uh, in, the, in terms of those tools yet. And I know there's a lot of being, uh, work being done through the, through the MPCC and, and with other um, specialists, but I think um, there's still a real need to have some robust tools in place and some consistent tools being used across a number of different agencies. So we're all speaking the same language when we're doing those, those risk assessments and understanding um, what exactly the specific needs of, of, of victims are. And Vera, you touched a little bit on, on the courts as well. Um, and, and one of the things that we're hearing a lot on the National Stalking Helpline, particularly during the pandemic from victims, is that that experience has been particularly um, traumatizing for many of them. Um, many have experienced delays in hearings and delays in getting protection, such as stalking protection orders in place, um, or, or interim orders not being put in place, leaving them essentially quite vulnerable. Um, what do you feel could be done at this point to improve the, the court response and to, to better protect victims? I mean, it, it, we are seeing a collapse in victim confidence, frankly, of the criminal justice system across the piece. More and more people who've gone for help and gone for justice are withdrawing their support. About 25% of people across all cases, not just serious ones like this now just drop the case when they've started and delay plays an enormous part in, in this. The backlog caused by the pandemic was of course built on a backlog from poor investment that existed all the time before. So, uh, and it's not, it's not getting any better. No doubt HMCTS, the court system is taking action. No doubt the government is investing to pull back delay, but it will take a long, time. So it, it, it is a problem. Some things that can be dealt with in the magistrate's court where there is a lesser backlog, though there still is something of a backlog, really ought to be actioned very urgently in a, a better understanding that the delay is risky and dangerous for a victim of stalking. And it is appalling that you're finding that the protective orders are not being used and that is quite shocking there is a stalking protection order or there could be a domestic violence um, protection notice or a protection order both very well tailored to a person whose behavior may or may not actually be criminal yet but it's heading that way and we want to stop them and put orders on them of what they must do and what they must not do before it escalates that's the whole point of them and how much more important that is when you've got a great backlog of court delays so you can't get a conviction as quickly as you would otherwise do it's imperative that these are are used and, it, and I was shocked when when you you let me know that your helpline was indicating that they just weren't being used they're not you know they're not difficult to obtain either it is it's the police 
it doesn't have to go for a prosecution to the CPS. And there's always that fallout between those two. Uh, it's on the civil burden of proof, standard of proof, which means that it's not very, very hard to prove it. You don't necessarily need the complainant to prove enough to get an order. And those orders can be very significant and they're in protection. And the greater significance is that, of course, a breach of them is a crime. So then you do uh, get uh, somebody who in that situation would normally be remanded in custody. And so out of the position, these protective orders are a very key thing, which must now start to be used, given the length of delay that there is. They need to be used all of the time. But this is, uh, this is you know, pretty dreadful news. And um, I'm, I will take up the fact that, you know, legislation went through as recently as eight, 2018 to get these specific protections in place. And there's never been a time when they're more needed than they are now. So I'm very grateful you're drawing this to my attention. And I do find it extremely worrying. Thank you, Vera. It is quite concerning. The report that we've launched this week actually shows that 60% of all respondents have no protection in place from any sort of order. And something that we are seeing on, on the helpline is victims actually being told not to apply for stalking protection orders, but other orders because of those those backlogs. But as you said, they should be there should be a, a civil threshold applied with the view that they actually they should be going through the court process a lot um, more. Uh, quickly and stalking protection orders of course have the positive obligation attached to them which is why it's so uh, such a, a critical tool such a helpful tool potentially available to victims of stalking so we are quite concerned at the moment of that of that of that low um, that low take up um, just just Vera looking across the criminal justice system what good practice do you think would be helpful at this point in terms of improving stalking victims' experiences through the whole criminal justice system from reporting to, to conviction? Well, I mean, I agree with, again with Tracy that victims are treated rather like extras or bystanders in, in, in the criminal justice system. After all, the crimes being committed against them, they're the one who's been affected. They, how they're dealt with by the criminal justice system is very important for how long they live with the trauma they can affect be affected long after the police and the cps and the courts have finished with the case and yet the focus is totally on investigating prosecuting and of course that's what we need but there has to be i mean you can't prosecute without a victim very often there has to be appropriate care for victims who are already traumatized and have already been let down so mm -hmm. victims have to start being treated as central to mm -hmm. the case if they've got if they're treated with disregard if they're not given support that leaves victims feeling worse actually than sometimes even the crime itself because they haven't been safe from the crime and now nobody's trying to restore them and people mm -hmm. feel very diminished by crime very worried about it but very much as if their life's been taken over by someone else. And they need the criminal justice system to say, we recognize that you're an important citizen. We are going to take good care of you. And very simple things make a massive difference. So there's been a new victims code, which I do hope can improve treatment. It has strong entitlements, 12 of them simply set out. 
So victims of all crimes now from a report being made are entitled to action without delay. Information about what's happening. Has someone been arrested? Have they not? If they have, are they on bail or are they in prison 300 miles away? What is the criminal justice process? How long will it take? How will it affect me? Support from specialists now is an entitlement. They must be a referral made and victims can make a personal statement to set out how the criminality has affected them, which can be read before sentence and that too has become a much stronger entitlement and they're allowed to be kept safe as well and if somebody is sentenced at the end of a trial to more than 12 months they're they're entitled to hear where that person is Mm -hmm. when they're coming out are they making progress on the sentence and generally to be kept in touch so that people are acknowledged you know as part of the process and they are reassured from start to finish that they are indeed important and that they will be taken care of. So these, the government is determined now, I do believe this, uh, to make this work, shifting the position of the victim into the middle of the case. Police and other agencies are being taught about it and they're being told it is very important. What is a reservation is that these are not rights in the sense that they're not enforceable mm-hmm. rights but there will be a victim's law presently which intends to take them into proper law and make them rights but when you go to court there is an uh, option to have special measures available to help you give your evidence in a less stressful way than being in the witness box and remotely from the perpetrator who would you know in many cases if the courts don't understand it regard being in court as quite a good way of contacting the victim again Mm -hmm. you know not be deterred by it Mm -hmm. at all so there are provisions which allow you to give your evidence from behind a physical screen if you want to be in the court so the person who's responsible can't see you and you can't see them or you can give your evidence across a live television link and although your face would appear on a television the perpetrator is blocked from seeing it so again you can't be seen and you're way away from him you can even do that from a remote sentence far far from the crown court and never have to go and for instance risk bumping into him on the way into court or being you know frightened by the sight of barristers as I used to be dressed up in that curious way or you know a lot of police this is quite intimidating Mm -hmm. you do a a remote evidence center you sit in a sort of sitting room give your evidence across a television link and again the screen can be screened so that he can't see you and you are aware that he can't all of these are very important and there is one extra step that's beginning to be taken for a lot of victims who are particularly vulnerable and I hope can quickly be extended to people who feel intimidated by the experience as um, stalking victims will. And that is to be able to record your evidence on video at a very early stage, as soon as you've gone to the police really is ideal. So your memory is fresh and it's all got down. And then that recording is given to the defense and they must cross examine you 
again across a link very soon, a couple of months further down the line only. And then that is videoed. And so you have two videos which mm -hmm. comprise your evidence. They are in a box. When the trial comes on, you don't have to be there. Your evidence is these two videos and you can move away from that case at a very early stage mm. and start to get over your trauma, never have any further connection with him. I'm sure the delay without this kind of provision being made is just an extra way in which the perpetrator is tormenting mm -hmm. a traumatized victim of mm -hmm. stalking. So if you can get it all over with and get on with your life before the trial even comes on, the delay becomes less important and you can start to have some trauma counseling or whatever it is you need. So that, it seems to me, can be a really good extra help for victims of stalking. And that's beginning to be rolled out. But there we've really got to like change it up a large number of gears. I'm pretty hopeful that the victims law, there'll be a consultation in the summer, will bring in not only um, better treatment across the piece, but also legal enforcement for all the rights of victims. We've done a long piece of consultation with every kind of victim and victims support organization, including stalking ones we could find. And we've recommended 34 things which we think should be in the victim's law. So in Stalking Awareness Week, this point has to be made again and again, I think. And the changes to victims' treatment must become law. And I'll keep banging on about that. Uh, as long as it doesn't happen. Thank you so much, Vera, for that detailed and very thorough response. We very much agree that victims must be placed at the centre of the criminal justice system. And some of your suggestions certainly seem like they would go a long way in mitigating that trauma we spoke about that victims experience through the criminal justice system. Thank you for being with us today and for, for all of your thoughts and reflections. Thank you very much for asking me. If you are a victim of stalking, remember you can call us on the National Stalking Helpline on 0808 802 0300. Or you can contact the Susie Lampley Trust on any matter relating to stalking or personal safety through our website at www.susielampley.org or email us at info at Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.